Davidson on Dragons, side three. When he penned the massive words that power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely, I don't know why not. Apollonius was a sort of ancient hippie, wore funny clothes, didn't trim his hair, and went to India to seek enlightenment. His biographer, one Philostratus, reports that Apollonius saw mountains covered, planted with pepper trees cultivated by apes, and then there were certain dragons of extraordinary size from whose heads were thrown off flames of fire. And if you slew one of them, he says, that you found marvelous stones upon the head. Note, in this case, upon and not inside. Note also the mention once again of India. Well, old Apollonius had the fortune or the misfortune to encounter posthumously the wrath of good Saint Eusebius, who said that he was very much afraid that Apollonius must have been a gunta or wizard, one who performs or experiences wonders by tormenting the souls of the dead, a severe charge indeed. Onward. Apollonius said, or Philostratus said that someone named Hierocles said, that Apollonius said, that the Arabians have a way of understanding swans and other birds by eating, so they say, some of them the heart and others the liver of dragons. We need linger no longer in considering this than to observe a similar notion in the Burgundian legend which became attached to Siegfried and eventually to the Nibelung lead, Nibelungen lead, uh, the dragon Fafnir and all the rest. I wish I could recall who it was said of Siegfried that if he did not at all times behave in all respects properly, we should remember that his childhood was spent in large part alone, with no one for company but a metallurgical dwarf by name Alberich. Perhaps in another lecture we can discuss the absolutely fascinating fable of the ironsmiths those magicians who burst the Bronze Age asunder and who for their pains were sometimes regarded as priests and sometimes as gods and sometimes as unclean outcasts who turned themselves into hyenas of knights and who sometimes were lamed. Remember Vulcan? To keep them from running away with their magical knowledge. Perhaps, and perhaps not. For the present, we must stick to dragons. Now, in case you are hankering for some further details about the wars between the dragon and the elephant, Clark B. Firestone, in that wonderful book, The Coasts of Illusion, subtitled A Study of Travel Tales, quotes one John Locke, who, in his book Voyage to Guinea, paraphrases an ancient belief they, the elephants that is, have continual warfare against dragons which desire their blood 
because it is very cold. Remember now that reptiles cannot sweat to cool off. And therefore the dragon lying awake as the elephant passeth by windeth his tail, being of exceeding length, about the hinder legs of the elephant, and so staying him, thrusteth his head into his trunk, and exhausteth his breath, or else biteth him in the ear, whereunto he cannot reach with his trunk. And when the elephant waxeth faint, he falleth down upon the serpent, being now full of blood, and with the poise of his body breaketh him, so that his own blood with the blood of the elephant runneth out of him mangled together, which, being cold, is congealed into that substance which the apothecaries call sanguis draconis, otherwise called cinnabarus, commonly called sinoper or vermilion, which the painters use in certain colors. Quite a story. And if you should shake your head and give a wry smile at how dragon's blood should turn out after all to be nothing but vermilion, take a moment to recognize that vermilion turns out to mean little worm. And worm, as we have seen, among its other meanings, means dragon. Let us take a quick hop, skip, and jump. Lo, there's the lad Arthur withdrawing the sword from the stone thus proving himself to be rightful king of Britain and son of old King Uther Pendragon. Pendragon? Which last name means, may mean, Dragon's Hill, Cape Dragon, Mount Dragon, Dragon's Head, or, at its simplest, Head Dragon. Long, long did King Arthur, the dragon king's son, keep at bay the savage hordes of Anglo-Saxons, those barbarous peoples with the hyphenated name. In the end and after his death or disappearance, they triumphed, and the Britons were either slain, enslaved, or fled across the seas to Gaul, thus establishing Brittany. Else they fled into the mountains of what the Sasnachs, the Saxons, called Wild Wales. I myself, seven and twenty years ago last winter, was in London when King George the Sixth died, and I stood well muffled, though not well enough, in the rain and sleet and snow, and while the muffled church bells tolled and the minute guns boomed, saw pass between the silent throngs the coffin with the royal corpse, followed by amongst others, three royal dukes, one himself an ex-king, and one now so suddenly the husband of a queen. I saw displayed as it passed by the standard of Ireland with its harp, the standard of Scotland with its St. Andrew's cross, so reminiscent of the Confederate flag. I saw there too the standard of Wales with its dragon rampant, and I saw the standard of England with its St. George's cross. And if you think that everything I have said so far is mere myth, mere fable, mere legend and tale, tell me, is it mere myth and fable and legend and tale that the dragon banner kingdom of Wales was conquered and slain by England whose banner was and is still that 
of St. George who slew the dragon? Tell me, who slew the dragon? Was it not St. George? Tell who cleft the devil's foot and got with child the mandrake root. Is not the mandrake the mandrake the mandragon? Which medieval writer says that at the midsummer celebration lads burn bones and filth to generate a noxious smoke and so drive away dragons which excited by summer heat copulated in midair poisoning the wells and springs by dropping their seed in them over a thousand years after the earlier reports and the dragon was still tormented by the heat but in Europe there were no elephants to slay to cool himself with the blood thereof I have quoted Clark B. Firestone and now do so again it is perhaps just a little curious is it not that he whose name is Firestone tells us that the dragon stone that gem torn from the head of the fiery dragon is a remedy against plague, poison, dysentery, and nosebleed, and that if the monster awakens before the operation is complete, the stone will vanish to forestall awakening. Drowsy herbs are scattered about, and sometimes incantations are muttered. Which herbs? Perhaps not poppy, nor mandragora, are all the drowsy syrups of the East, mandragora, mandrake, mandragon. When the Roman writer Lucan declared to the dragon, you burst apart vast bulls, was he perhaps thinking of bull elephants? It is or was a well-known fact that one of the ancient libraries Ignatius says Constantinople, and I forget who said Alexandria. There is no essential conflict. It might have been Alexandria's before it was Constantinople's. One of the ancient libraries contained a copy of the Iliad and or the Odyssey written upon the intestine of a dragon. And, says Ignatius, it was an 125 feet long. This, I suppose, we must assume the scroll and not the dragon. If this was the very copy which Alexander the Great put under his pillow along with a dagger each time he retired, he perhaps did not sleep well of nights. Ars longa, vita breva. Firestone once more. Chinese Materia Medica, he says, says of the dragon that its voice resembles the beating of a gong. And I ask, can this possibly shed any light for us upon those only partly puzzling lines of Homer's, the wine dark, the dolphin torn, the gong tormented sea? But, say the Chinese, the dragon, however, cannot hear it, for it is deaf. It is fond of gems and jade and excessively fond of swallow's flesh, but it dreads iron, beeswax, the moon plant, the centipede, the leaves of the pride of India, 
and silk dyed in the five colors. This all sounds precise enough to seem authoritative, but allow me to ask, when the dragon causes eclipses by swallowing the sun or the moon, how is it, if it indeed is death, that the swarming masses of China invariably forced it to disgorge by swarming out in their hundreds of millions and beating furiously upon every pot and pan in the Middle Kingdom? I shall not ask also how it is in such a case that the dragon was obliged to make rain in time of drought by the emperors beating upon a dragon-skin drum. For this fact was revealed to me one day at lunch by one of the last surviving eunuchs of the imperial court long, long ago, and I shall save the story for my lecture or lectures entitled Eunuchs and Unicorns. But perhaps I suppose the dragon is deaf, and it was the vibration alone which attracted his attention. The deaf adder, we are told, stoppeth its ears. The Chinese traveler, Huen Sang, who lived over 1300 years ago, has excellent advice for us. To avoid dragons, he says, one should not wear red garments nor carry loud-sounding calabashes wherever you are. Here is my last quotation now from the learned Mr. Firestone, who says that, as it stands, the dragon myth is like the fabric of a vision in which tatters of experience are woven on the looms of sleep by the master weavers of hope and fear. And in this faded, grotesque, one may decipher the eternal dream of mankind. From a trade list not dated, but dating from sometime in the mid-1300s, of items imported into Florence, it is a fascinating list, but it is also a long one, so I shall quote sparingly. Wax of Montenegro, wax of Ragusa, wax of the Byzantine Empire and of Bulgaria, rock candy, camphor, caraway, fish glue, indigo of the Adriatic, indigo of Cyprus, white sandalwood, red sandalwood, hard soap, soft soap, dragon's blood, mustard, yellow sulfur, black sulfur, and so on and so on. You see how matter-of-fact the old merchants were. Soft soap, dragon's blood, mustard, business is business, eh? The skeptical modern editor of this text describes our item in a footnote as a ruby red gum resin. Bless you dare, Charlie. Used in pharmaceutics and as a color. Hmm. But can you imagine going into a store and saying, give me a ducat's worth of dragon's blood and getting it? Talk about the romance of commerce. Very well, let's talk about it. Here's something right from the dragon's mouth, so to speak. The Book of the Wares and Usages of Diverse Countries, 1458, the chapter entitled, How to Know Many Wares. Wax ought to have a rich color and be clear to the bottom. Anything hard to understand there? Dates ought to be fresh, large, and ripe. I couldn't agree more. Onward. Dragon's blood ought to be red and blood-colored, light, clear, clean, and glistening. And indeed it ought. What news on the Rialto? Can I get you anything when I'm done?
fourth side. Well, I'm downtown in the gondola. Yeah. How about a pound of wax, a pound of dates, and a pound of dragon's blood while you're at it? Meanwhile, when it's not elephants, it's eagles. Between the eagle and the dragon, says Armstrong's folklore of birds, there is constant enmity, the eagle seeking to kill it, and the dragon breaks the eagle's eggs. This seems rather reckless on the eagle's part. And my own explanation is that the eagle only goes after young dragons, which, threshing around in the nest, probably does break some, if not all, of the eggs. Nowadays, of course, there is less peril from dragons breaking the eagle's eggs. Instead, the eggs break because the shells are weakened by the DDT washed into the rivers and consumed by the fishes, which the eagles eat. If the stone falls upon the pitcher, or the pitcher falls upon the stone, woe to the pitcher. Now, remember how St. Eusebius scoffed and scorned about Apollonius of Tyana, and how the biography of the latter told of his having seen dragons in India with stones on their heads? Here is a little something from Jordanus Catalanus, the Bishop of Columbine, who reports in his own book, Mirabilia Descripta, circa 1450, that in the third India, there are many dragons with brilliant stones called carbuncles in their heads. Well, true that the bishop does say in and not on, but here's something from Purchase His Pilgrims, which, though not by a bishop, seems to fill in the gap. There is, in India, he says, a snake, which they call of the shadow, or canopy, because it hath a skin on its head. You see, on its head, wherewith it covereth a very precious stone. And a modern commentator adds, clearly the cobra. Some things are clear to some people and to others, and if it is a fact that the cobra has a stone under its hood, he ought to tell us so, I think. Personally, I have no intention of looking. There are some things I am, under some circumstances, willing to take on faith. And what I say, I say in regard to all these data, here a little, there a little, and little by little bit, it all adds up. Unless, of course, it all falls apart. Here's another little bit from Monsieur Bessie, whom I have had occasion to quote before. The unicorn was a symbol frequently used by the alchemists, and it represented Mercury and the lion. And now it has been now and then, it has now and then seen to me that the logic of Monsieur Bessie is a bit messy now and then. And here, for instance, I have to ask myself why the lion, which was itself an alchemical symbol, should have been symbolized by the unicorn, which is, after all, in this case, another symbol. But I am intrigued by this alchemical association of the lion and the unicorn, which, as any fool can plainly see, are, in heraldry, the supporters which hold up the Royal British coat of arms, one on each side. The lion was an English symbolic animal from of old, and the unicorn came in, I believe, from Hanover, 
whose royal, if that is Limoges, family inherited the English and Scottish thrones after the death of the last reigning, reigning Stuart monarch, Queen Anne. What, however, has all of this to do with our topic, the dragon? Why, Monsieur Bessie goes on to say that the unicorn was intermingled with the eagle and the dragon, and I suppose he must mean as an alchemical symbol again, or perhaps he doesn't exactly. Perhaps he means that in sundry alchemical processes, experiments, perhaps we should call them, perhaps not, substances symbolized by the unicorn were intermingled with substances, chemicals in other words, alchemicals, represented by the eagle and the dragon. Now, since we have learned but a little earlier that the eagle and the dragon are at enmity, Uh, so how come when the said substances are, so to speak, chemically incompatible, how did the alchemists manage to intermingle them successfully? Well, maybe they did all the same. Maybe. We, God knows, don't know everything that went on in those quaint old laboratories. Then or later, the old Earl of Cavendish, I hope I've got the right Earl, or I may hear from the House of Lords about it, had a private lab early in the 19th century, and I understand that purely for his own amusement, so to speak. He successfully pulled off many an electrical experiment which did not come to the eyes of science for another half century because he never told anybody. Purely his own business, so to speak, and there are, after all, no eccentrics like the great British eccentrics. The regular electrical experimenters had to find it out for themselves. And it took them 50 years, man. Now, weren't they pissed off? When it turned out that old Lord Cavendish or whoever had already done it, a fact or fancies. A fact or fact. A fact or facts which came out only when someone got a look at his dusty old lab reports, discovered when her ladyship was doing the spring cleaning or something. But perhaps I digress, eh? And maybe the alchemists did not manage to intermingle the snake and the dragon successfully. Maybe they blew themselves up and all to hell and gone. It used to happen all the time. The eagle is nothing to trifle with, and neither, of course, is the dragon. And anyway, as as P.M. Hubbard observed, in effect, the alchemists may not have discovered how to make gold, but they discovered how to make gunpowder. Good God. The alchemists may not have discovered how to make gold, but they discovered how to make Epsom salts or at any rate, how to make them available, good and clean and cheap to the general public. So that's something anyway. Well, well, let's go back just a little bit and have a more prolonged look at that, at what was said by Father Later Bishop Jordanus in his book of Miraculous Description. Here it is, 
Of India Tertia, I will say this, that I have not indeed seen its many marvels, not having been there, but I have heard them from trustworthy persons. For example, there be dragons in the greatest abundance, which carry on their heads the lustrous stones, which be carbuncles. These animals have their lying places upon gold and sand, and grow exceeding big, and cast forth from the mouth a most fetid and infectious breath, like the thickest smoke driving from the air, arising like the thickest smoke rising from fire. These animals come together at the destined time, develop wings, and begin to raise themselves in the air, and then, by the judgment of God, being too heavy, they drop into a certain river which issues from paradise and perish there. But all the regions round about watch for the time of the dragons, and when they see one which has fallen, they wait for seventy days, and then go down and find the bare bones of the dragons, and take the carbuncle which is rooted in the top of his head, and carry it to the emperor of the Ethiopians, whom you call Prester John. Well, to bring in the punchline of an old joke, which I'm not going to tell here, that's one explanation. Some several years ago, I bought an old book at, appropriately enough, an old book sale. It was The Romantic Fairy Tale by Marianne Thalman, a professor at one time at the University of Michigan. She quotes August Mack, and I shall do the same. These men, that is the authors of certain romantic fairy tales, what these men saw was not a naively simple nature, but... but mysterious signs which could be singled out and become in this abstraction the means to magical spatial effects. They did not want to copy the world. They recreated it, responsible to themselves alone. Truth does not depend upon actuality. It must merely fill us with certainty. Through this intellectual selectivity, nature loses nothing of its greatness in the intimacy of its effects. And experience, as experience shows, the world is transformed by it to new realities, realities which is reality which is contested appears again in surreality. And that's another explanation. Not exactly an explanation, but certainly a reaction is the reply of Panurge to Heratripa the astrologer, in Rabelais' third book, after the sage has given him a long list of choices as to how he may have his fortune told in a wide variety of ways. Go to the devil, you raving lunatic, says Panurge. Get yourself buggered by an Albanian. Why the devil don't you tell me to hold an emerald or a hyena stone under my tongue, or to eat the heart and liver of some dragon so that I may hear my destiny from the voice of the swan and the song of the birds, as the Arabs did of old in the land of Mesopotamia. And even after they have gone from Heratripa's chambers, Panurge continues to grumble. He can foresee the future in a hundred different ways, the old cook old, 
and he can't even see that all the page boys are rogering his wife on the back stairs. The beatnik poet, remember the beatniks? Came before the hippies? Remember the hippies? The beatnik poet Clara Hoffman, who was not the congressman of the same name and who lived in Venice, I mean Venice, California, not Venice, Italy, once defined a cuckold as someone whose best friend had it in for him, but perhaps I'm wandering far afield, eh? Let us return to our dragons. In the farthest, farthest west, hard by the stormy Atlantic, a dragon guarded the golden apples of the Hesperides. In the farthest, farthest east, in distant Colchis, on the yonder shore of the Black Sea, a dragon guarded the golden fleece. In the far, far north, Amidst the snows of Alamania, what do we see? A vast treasure, and what is guarding it? Correct, a dragon, which leaves the south, the what I mean deep south, to wit Ethiopia, which is by no means necessarily the modern nation of that name. And what golden thing do we know was there? Well, for one, there was the table of the sun, which certainly sounds as though it might have been golden, doesn't it? And we are certainly told that Apollo, who was, among other things, the sun god, used to go south once a year, not for his health, no, but to visit the wise and fleecy-haired Ethiopians. And inasmuch as Apollo, when a mere youth, had already killed a dragon at Delphi, perhaps if no dragon was guarding the table of the sun, it was because it used to go into hiding whenever it heard that Apollo was coming. Of course, there, there was the rest of the year when Apollo wasn't there, and what was the dragon doing then? Fighting with elephants, maybe. Still, the dragons did guard the groves of frankincense in southern Arabia, and although I hesitate to say that frankincense is exactly golden, still it does sometimes have golden glints. And there is a sort of fearful symmetry to the pattern I have picked out for you, isn't there? Oh, well, look, here is old Jacob Grimm, whom everyone knows as co-anthologist with his brother of what is, or anyway was, regarded as the book of fairy tales. But I'm not going to quote from his fairy tales, <clears throat> some of which are very grim indeed, pun intended. No. I'm going to quote for his work in four massive volumes on Teutonic mythology. There is a reference in volume four to dragon quellers, a nice phrase. Jacob, may I call him Jake, quotes Saxo Grammaticus as saying that Frotho, a second Siegfried, overpowers a venomous dragon that lay reposing on his treasures. Now this is somewhat unclear. Whose treasures? Saxo Grammaticus's, the dragons? Frotho's? The matter is rather unclear. One thing, however, is clear. Frotho is certainly Frodo, the protagonist of Tolkien's Ring trilogy, one and merely one exemplum of the immense learning which lies behind that immense romance. Now, Grimm informs us that the infant dragon is called the Lingorm, and I make this Lingworm, or Longworm, though, of course, I may be wrong. And is there not some sort of connection with linga or lingam? It would fit. The snake and the phallus were identified, and for obvious reasons, long before Freud delved and Jung span.
Hear the voice of the Bard, who present, past, and future sees, whose ears have heard the holy word that walked among the ancient trees, calling the lapsed soul and weeping in the evening dew that might restore, that might recall the fallen pole and starry, starry light renew. Earth, O oh earth, O oh earth, return. Return, why dost thou turn away? The starry shore, the watery floor is given thee till the break of day. Dragon, part five, Adventures in Unhistory, uh, rehearsal, so to speak, College of University of Texas at El Paso, October 5th, approximately, 1979. The phrase, the dragon at Delphi, has a sound of great power, like the word Ticonderoga, which, however, unlike Delphi, has nothing to do with dragons. Let us, therefore, and immediately close the door on Ticonderoga in the name of the great Jehovah and the Continental Congress. I have had occasion to inquire into a big, I might almost say a vast book called Python by Joseph Fontenrose and subtitled A Study of Delphic Myth and Its Origins. He says in his introduction, in dealing with Asiatic myths, I have had to rely upon the studies and translations of Orientalists, but the works of specialists, the work of specialists, after all, is intended for the use of others. Indeed it is. And I am sure that Mr. A Doctor or Professor Fontenrose would in no wise object to my using his own immensely impressive work. Sometimes I shall be using it, simply or complexly, to tell you what he himself, with or without the help of others, has to say on this subject. Sometimes I shall be using it complexly or simply to remind me of my own discoveries or subsequent inspirations. And sometimes I shall be telling you of Mr. Fontenrose by name. And sometimes I shall not. So there. Listen. The late appearing version of a myth may very well have appeared earlier in writing, or an orally transmitted version may very well then have received literary notice for the first time. In short, no evidence can be ignored. All is grist to our mill. Fontenrose. In speaking the word Python, which is itself a word of power, in the biblical cautions against witchcraft, what the King James or Protestant Bible terms familiar spirits are in the Douay version or Douay version or Catholic, old Catholic version termed Pythonic spirits we're not speaking of the ghosts of snakes you know Python was the name of the great serpent or dragon which appeared at Delphi which it were useless to describe as a stony island off the coast of Greece because, after all, there are no other kind. You must get it into your pointed little heads once for all that this reptile was not called python because it was a big snake. No, no. 
The big snake of that name is so-called because it was named after the one at Delphi. If that is not utterly clear, you are all going to be very confused. Where are we? We are at Delphi. Okay, onward. Delphi was one of the places called the navel of the earth. And what is attached to a navel in the original state? Yours, mine, the Roman Pope's, anyone's? Answer, an umbilical cord. And isn't an umbilical cord somewhat serpentine in appearance? If you have never seen one or are too shy to cop to it, take my word, it is. But dragons, you will say, perhaps being reptiles and hence hatching out of eggs, have no navels. And indeed they have not. This, of course, does not bother dragons who are much too busy with their usual fun and games to worry at not having belly buttons. And their usual fun and games includes making or, be, or being uh, thunderbolts and chasing meteors or meteorites. One did not know that dragons chase meteors or meteorites. One evidently has never seen a traditional Chinese picture of a dragon with mane flying and claws curving and body twisting and tail writhing as it pursues a great ball of fire. One either accepts my word that this is a meteor, or one accepts the Chinese concept that it is some sort of mysterious and immense flaming pearl, for pity's sake. And if you would rather believe that there are pearls up there than that there are meteors up there, well, all I can say is what the great Duke of Wellington, the conqueror of Napoleon, said when, dressed in full uniform, he was accosted by a boob who asked, Mr. Jones, I believe? Sir, said the Duke, owner of the second most famous face in Europe. Sir, if you believe that, you'll believe anything. Now then, Davidson, what was the dragon doing in Delphi? For that matter, what was anyone doing in Delphi? To visit the great temple of Apollo? Ah, but we are suddenly in Delphi at a time when even Apollo, one of the immortal gods, had yet to be born. And even then people were coming there to worship. Despite the fact that the dragon, whose name, by the way, was Pytho in one form, that the dragon would pounce down upon and eat them. That's the old-time religion, and it's not good enough for me. Here we have the Romanian scholar and writer, Mircea Eliada. And let's, for the moment anyway, not have any of these, those pre-Polish jokes, like if you have a Romanian friend, you don't need an enemy, or Romanian recipe for an omelet for steal two eggs. Next come around. Eliada is deep, man. Eliada is heavy. It is true that some of his deeps and heavies would probably be of interest only to another Romanian, but not so, surely, in his book called The Forge and the Crucible, subtitled The Origin and Structures of Alchemy. Mircea Eliada speaks of the early religious significance attached to uh, aeroliths, in other words, meteors and meteorites and lapidae and, and so on, and lapidae, whatever, and, and so on, aeroliths. He says, continues to say, uh, the religious, early religious significance attached to aeroliths, they fall to earth charged with celestial sanctity. In a way, they represent heaven. Heaven 
via meteorites impregnates the earth with iron. The thunderbolt and the meteorites cleaved the earth and Delphi, most famous of the clefts of ancient Greece, signifies the female generative organ. Plato reminds us that in the matter of conception, it is the woman who imitates the earth and not the earth who imitates woman. That's what the dragon was doing at Delphi. We're not eating people up? Maybe. Evidently, the meteorites were, in any way one view, regarded as dragon seed. You will recall from my previous lecture, and damn well better, the medieval report that in summer the dragons disturbed by the heat attempted to copulate way up in the middle of the air and, when baffled, dropped their seed upon the earth. A very dragonomorphic con conception, wouldn't you agree? And let us remember, too, that Monsieur Bessie, in his highly suspect History of Magic and the Supernatural, has declared that in the Chinese cosmology, the symbol of the sky also stands for the father, the dragon, and the male procreative force. A force which, I need hardly tell you, is regarded as being both desirable and dangerous. George Eliot, whilst going on and on and on about old Silas Mourner and other dreary topics, did declare that, quote, the rude mind with difficulty associates the ideas of power and benignity, close quote. And I must have quoted her a million times. Back to Bessie, busy oversimplifying the ancient Chinese, but who are we to complain? Voice from the audience, who do you have to be? Bessie says, the earth symbol also stands for the mother and the female principle. Are you getting all this? Don't make notes. Anybody I see making notes? F for flunk. You misspell all the names and miss my elocutional gems. Voice from the audience. How do you spell gems, professor? Onward. Quote, quote. Delphi was the center of the pre-Christian West, dominating the valley of Pleistos above an olive grove which extends right to the Gulf of Corinth, the city of Apollo. That's Delphi, remember? Delta, Epsilon, Lambda, Phi, Iota, and if anyone says it's Eta and not Epsilon, I'll kill him. The city of Apollo rapidly took on the character of a religious capital, I'm quoting, and indeed the intellectual center of the entire Greek world. If it is accepted that the historical period proper, say what about improper, hey Bessie, did not begin until the 6th century BCE, it is certain that the influences of Delphi had been made manifest at least eight centuries previously. It was a determining factor in the development of Christian colonization. Why? Why? What do you mean, why? You think that any Greeks would be foolhardy enough to embark across the wine dark, the dolphin torn, the gong tormented sea without having first 
consulted the Oracle of Delphi as to where to go planting their colony? Believe that, you'll believe anything. As if to confirm its renown as a place chosen by the gods, Delphi was subjected to innumerable catastrophes, earthquakes, floods, rocks, avalanches, and fires. Also, supposedly, meteorite showers, dragons, and death. Old Fontainebleau is back. Says, Zeus, Zeus, the father of the gods, also had a critical fight with a dragon, for we may properly call Typhon a dragon, though his body was not entirely reptilian, and included more than one snake within it. That is, Typhon had two snakes for instead of two legs. We may also call him monster or ogre, but the Greeks called him Dracon. Enough Fontenot. Now, are you slightly puzzled? Zeus has a fight with a dragon, Typhon. And Apollo has a fight with a dragon, Python. Which form of the name came first? Ah. The ancient Greeks didn't know, and I don't know either. It may be that there are some things which man is not meant to know. We are informed rather casually on a sort of take-it-or-leave-it basis that the root of python is from a Greek word meaning rotten or rotting. And why because? Because after Apollo killed it, it rotted. Right? Believe that and you'll believe. Horses are called equine because they pull equine. Of course, there is an old story that Python was named from Pytho, an old name for Delphi. I can hear one ancient Greek saying to another, both sailors probably, and it's late Sunday afternoon and they are bored out of their gourds, and one says to the other, Christ, what a rotten place. And the other one, who is a bit better boned up in his comparative religion, says, by Zeus and by Apollo, it is a rotten place. Let's take the ship's boat over to Corinth while the captain's drunk and see if we can scare up some action. So off they go, little realizing that they have put into usage a word which will endure for untold millennia, only maybe not. So onward, and Typho? This is said to come from another ancient Greek word. The Greeks had a word for it, oh boy, meaning smoke. I forget just why. Now my theory, kids, my theory, if you want to know, is that python, meaning rotting, was called so because dragons' dens are always full of rotting stuff. Dragons are slobs, man. They even smell rotten. And typho from smoke, right? Because, well, what comes out of a dragon's mouth? Smoke! That medieval thing about building big fires of rotten stuff in hopes the smoke would scare away the dragons, hair of the dog that bit you, or in this case, the dragon. Similia similibus curantur, that's Latin, means like, cures like. And by this time, you'll perhaps not be astonished when I inform you that the priestess of Apollo at Delphi was called Pythonissa. Sometimes one of these Pythonisses became the mouthpiece for the Delphic Oracle, and sometimes another, any woman, it says here in my notes, was supposed to have a spirit of divination. Do traces of this belief remain? 
Have you ever heard of woman's intuition? But just try calling them pythonesses today, boy. Betty Friedan will personally come in and cut your kidneys out, after which perhaps feeding them to a dragon. According to some, though not all, ancient illustrations on pots and plates, fragile things which have survived long after massive temples have crumbled into the earth, the dragon at Delphi had three heads. And this brings us back to Byzantium, old and never dying name for what later became Constantinople, capital of what we call the Byzantine Empire or the Eastern Roman Empire, but which in the Middle Ages was called simply Greece. As this country shrank and dwindled, sundry items of the glory which was were removed from their ancient original sites and taken to the capital. The magnificent bronze horses of St. Mark's Cathedral at Rome are one example, although those were later rapted off to Venice. We've mentioned this next one before, but let's mention it again. Out of each of the three heads of the serpent column of Delphi came water or wine or milk. That's, of course, a legendary report from the Middle Ages. Somewhat of a come down from former times when one would suppose the three heads would burp venom, smoke, and a really terrible smell. Well, here's some more on another item at Constantine City, which I've also mentioned before in passing. <coughs> to wit, a triple-headed dragon which belched fire and ignited hostile ships. Now that sounds much more like a dragon and less like a dispensing machine, doesn't it? It was in Delphi over the doorway to the Temple of Apollo that a mysterious, some say a divine hand, wrote the well-known, but perhaps not well enough, words, Know Thyself. Largely to Robert Graves goes the credit for reminding us that Apollo was, among other things, not only the sun god, but the mouse god. Well, Apollo killed the dragon, the dragon is a sort of huge winged snake. Snakes eat mice, mice eat grain. Grain is the source of bread. And Hesiod reminds us that mortal man must till the earth for bread or perish. Of course, having killed the dragon snake at Delphi, sacred to the Pythonesses, who via the oracle were prophetesses, made Apollo god of prophecy as well. Another saying, this one from Chilon of Sparta, not merely engraved but consecrated at Delphi, says that misery is the companion of lawsuits. Moral, never sue a dragon. Darwin said something which reminds us uh, vaguely of, of what I said above, uh, uh, just above. Darwin said that... Uh, the presence of old maids in the countryside increased the amount of wildflowers there. His logic runs as follows. Uh, wildflowers are fertilized, I mean pollinated by bumblebees, but mice eat bumblebees. But old maids keep cats, and cats eat the mice. Now, no doubt at all, many of you are asking yourselves, where does he get all this stuff from? Imbecile question number 936. Where do you writers get your ideas? 
And in this last case, Harlan Ellison tells us that the correct answer is Schenectady. However, the true and simple answer is that over many, many years I have read many, many books and made thereon from many, many notes. And these have produced many, many patterns, and I have just followed these to their logical confusions. And if you've got any other questions, keep them till after class. We began the first Dragon Lecture, I hope you recall, no notes, no notes, with references to an old book called The Paraplus of the Erythrian Sea, remember? Better. We learn whether from the text itself or from the commentaries on the text, or both, or both, that the dragons of Arabia guarded the groves of precious frankincense trees, and that from time to time these dragons, probably in the off-season, taking advantage of low rates, flew over into Egypt or into Ethiopia, where they made war on elephants, so notoriously cold-blooded. So now here another quotation from the Periplus. Well, to be frank, from my notes on the Periplus, and if you want to know, my notes on the notes on the Periplus, the translator and editor who wrote the notes of the latest edition was a Wilbur, or rather Wilfred Schaff, and was quoting Strabo, the ancient geographer. So you see, if you thought that writing history in any form was easy, well, as Cromwell put it to the Scottish Congregationalists, I beseech you, brethren, in the bowels of Christ, consider that you may be mistaken. We are on what is now called the African shore of the Red Sea, and just below the Red Sea is a place, this same, ancient, this same shore, anciently known as Azania, a name which the South African black nationalists have recently appropriated because the name South Africa gives them bad vibes, despite the fact that Azania, Somalia is its modern name, is about 3,000 miles away from South Africa. So I hope to Christ they know more about African economy and such than they do about African geographical history. But God knows we all have our troubles, and I don't need them on my neck, too, as I am already being blamed for all the problems of the Palestinians, the Patagonians, the Peruvians, and the... But I stray onward, or perhaps backward. Here comments as we go a-sailing down the coast of the bluffs and courses of Ozania, as the Periplus calls it. And here, again, I quote, the valley called Apollo, the valley called Apollos, which bears frankincense, myrrh, and cinnamon. Hey, thought that all the frankincense was on the Arabian side, didn't you? Well, live and uh, learn. Quote, next is the mountain Eliphaz projecting into the sea. Hmm, hmm. Eliphaz means ivory. And not only does ivory come from elephants, it was to fight the elephants and get cooled off in their cool blood that the dragons flew over from Arabia. And if the dragons had been guarding frankincense in Arabia, so who was guardian in Africa? Damned if I know. But it does seem as if we may, we just may, have pinpointed a scene of a battleground between those two kinds of great beasts. Wowie zowie gang. An aside, a fascinating aside, 
And if I see even one eyelid droop, at least one head will roll, I warn you. And aside, after leaving the bluffs and courses of Azania, the Greco-Roman trading ships went on and on and on, eventually to India. And among the items they picked up by way of trade there was, and listen carefully, honey from the reed called Sakari. Did you get that? Honey from the reed called Sakari. The reed in question was the sugar cane. The honey, so-called, was actually a very thick molasses, in other words. And this is evidently, and so far as I know, the earliest reference to sugar, which has just entered Western commerce. Be sure and tell your dentist. Back to Bessie on the defeat of the dragon who protects the primeval female cults of Delphi, as he puts it, and he may be right. Now, if I remember, old Zeus, who was himself a dragon slayer, had been playing some of his favorite funny games and had knocked up someone named Leto, who wasn't Mrs. Zeus mad. It wasn't, after all, the first time this had happened. So there was Leto, pregnant, and in fact, pregnant with Apollo. The dragon old Pytho, who was, by the way, according to some accounts, a female dragon, tried its best to gobble the baby, but no dice. The baby was born, the baby grew. Accounts differ as to how much the baby grew before the moment of truth. In some versions, Apollo was still a child when he killed the dragon at Delphi, and, says Bessie, installed at Delphi the sun cult of the male principle. Bring back the mother goddess, girls. The good old days when you and your babies got eaten by dragons. Only maybe not. But let's not have any religious arguments, okay? Onward. Leto, by the way, was known as the goddess of fertility and eventually gave birth to twins, appropriately. Apollo was one and Artemis was the other, also being known as Diana, the huntress. If Diana ever hunted dragons, however, damn if I know. The twin motive reappears. Hypnos and Thanatos were twin brothers. Quote, Apollo and the Muses love Hypnos. Hypnos, of course, means sleep, and Thanatos, of course, means death. But perhaps we'd better stick with Apollo. Another good reason for his killing the dragon was that he was, after all, the sun god, and as all the best old Chinese authorities have told us, eclipses are caused by a dragon's eating the sun, or in cases of partial eclipses, remember, trying to eat it, and before being, before being scared off. Of course, the Chinese don't believe all that old stuff anymore, and don't we sort of wish they did. We've mentioned here last time Pliny the Elder, old Pliny, write that down. No notes, no notes, right? But I think we have not before mentioned a later Roman writer named Salinus, who was called Pliny's Ape. Now, a book on the history of map-making may not seem a likely source for the sort of stuff we go into here, but rather like old Pliny, I rather think that everything is to be regarded as a likely source. Lloyd A. Brown, author of The Story of Maps, tells us that Salinus told of people in Italy who sacrificed to Apollo 
by dancing barefoot on burning embers, and he described the huge pythons of Calabria in southern Italy. It is probably only a coincidence, if one can ever dare say only a coincidence, for perhaps there are no coincidences, but still, it is at least mildly curious. Here we have Apollo, we have pythons, we have fire. No one would argue that dragons are birds, so don't even bother calling that to my attention, do you hear? But they both have wings. So let us at least peek into E.A. Armstrong's book, The Folklore of Birds, and see what we can see. Is that okay? Apollo, on an engraved smaragdos, which I take to be an emerald, though perhaps smaragdos sounds nicer, or, or anyway, fancier is a scene showing Apollo carrying off Kyrene. They are flying north to the realm of the Hyperboreans, whom we will meet later, in a swan chariot. Well, what Mencken called a morganatic honeymoon, no doubt, but it has nothing to do with dragons, or has it nothing to do with. Remember those comments that in ancient days the Arabians used to eat dragons' livers, whether chopped or otherwise, I wouldn't know. Who does? In order to understand the speech of swans, perhaps after killing the dragon at Delphi, Apollo ate its liver, or part of it, and hence was able to speak with the swans and to direct them as they drew his chariot. The Eleusinian mysteries refer to a dragon chariot. What did they mean? We will never know. But perhaps uh, the swan being sacred to Apollo, the swan was sacred to Apollo, and let us hope they did not often sing to him, however often they may have spoken to him, for the swan never sings except just before death, as is well known. What song the sirens sang is not, as Sir Thomas Brown tells us, not beyond conjecture. So too... Part six. Are you taking this recording machine? Dragon lecture, part six. So too, perhaps, what song was sung by swans? It was in the form of a swan who ravished Leda. From the two eggs were born, from one, the twins, Castor and Pollux. From the other, there hatched out Helen, later named of Troy. Ladies, you've got to watch those swans every blessed minute. Oh, me, the practice of transformation or metamorphosis, metamorphosis, shape-shifting, if you will, is a subject in its own right, and we will deal with it at length in the lecture on the werewolves. It was a favorite trick for those old leches, the Olympians, to change their shapes and forms at the twinkling of a passing girl. Zeus is a bull, and so forth and so on. But here is one which ought really to surprise us. I quote from Jacob Grimm. Apollo, in the form of a dragon, conceived a son by a mortal female. Apollo, the dragon killer, assumed the form of a dragon? Well, there it is in black and white. Wonder what it was like to have had a dragon for a father. After all, 
Could it have been worse than having bristles down your backbone, like the Merovingian kings? Wouldn't like to go for a piggyback ride with those boys. Hog bristles, those were. Well, here's Dr. Fontenrose again. He is chiefly interested in the dragon myth as an exemplum, and perhaps the prime exemplum of what he calls the combat myth. And he lists quite a number of what he calls themes of the combat myth. I won't quote them all, but I will quote some. Ready or not, here I come. Remember, though, the enemy, as Fontenrose calls him, is not always a dragon. The enemy, whether dragon or otherwise, lived in a cave, hut, or tree. Well, I've never yet heard of a dragon who lived in a hut, but of course dragons often do live in caves, and in their related form of snake, if you assume that dragons are not supple enough, and a rather dangerous assumption that would be, often coil around trees, particularly if they're guarding some treasure in the tree. He was guardian of he was guardian or spirit of a spring. We'll get to this one again, you'll see. He lived in lake, sea, or river. The Chinese have always meticulously distinguished between sky or air dragons, earth or land dragons, dragons, or water dragons. In Japan, a dragon was often found at the bottom of a pond or well. In both the case of Perseus and Andromeda, and of St. George, the dragon comes out of the sea. The Loch Ness monster lives in a, well, loch, which is Scottish for lake. And the author of the book, The Great Orm of Loch Ness, produces sundry reports, much more recent than ancient Greece, of what were described as lacely waters. Loathsome, in other words, in rivers and streams in England and Ireland during the Middle Ages and later. And need I plant in your mind that the legend of the dragon may very well be associated with that of the sea serpent? Could the so-called dragon-headed Viking ships have been modeled after sea serpents? Well, back to Fontainebleau in about time, eh? The enemy was gigantic. He had non-human form, most often that of a snake, but also lizard, crocodile, scorpion, fish, hippopotamus, etc. The enemy sent death by fire, glance, or breath, fire from his nostrils, mouth, or eyes, poison-laden breath from nostrils or mouth. Here, let us pause a moment and take a sudden thought in the manner of those ancient or modern who feel that legend and or myth is always an allegorization, or should I say, personification, of some form of nature. Jupiter Pluvius, for example, is the rain personified. The yellow hair of Apollo is the sun and its rays, and so on. What can we say in such terms of the fire-breathing giant whose breath is poisonous and laden. Could it be perchance a volcano? Aha, maybe. But why take all the fun out of it? Onward. The enemy was vicious and greedy. He carried off the young of man and beast. He was gluttonous and a man-eater, a lecher and ravisher. 
demanding that maidens be offered to him. This last demand, of course, perfectly fits both the legend of Perseus rescuing Andromeda when she was changed to the rock to await the monster's coming, and of St. George, whose adventure was so similar to Perseus's that skeptical historians have supposed that the St. George story is no more than an imitation of the Perseus story with the addition of Christian elements, such as St. George's persecution by the pagan and Roman emperor Diocletian. Well, I suppose it may be so, or we may be not. After all, more than one man has shot a polar bear, for example. More than one man may have shot a polar bear and rescued a young woman at the same time. If there was any truthful or actual circumstance behind the Perseus story, the same circumstance may have recurred at the time of St. George. By the way, although we are told that St. George lived in about the third century of the Christian era, there is no record of his legend in regard to the dragon having appeared before the 10th or 11th century. In recent times, the Roman Catholic Church has given out that there was no actual dragon and that it merely symbolized evil. As to this, I will merely recall that my old barber, Jimmy Picconi, now in his 90s, told me that on a rock near his native town in Sicily is what is said to be the footprint of a dragon. What do you think, Jimmy? I asked. I ain't made up my mind yet, he said. It has also been said that in late pagan times, which were in part early Christian times, when the old heathen faith was fading, uh, Perseus represented the divine power which rescued the human soul, symbolized by the maiden, from the threatening monster, death. It is easy to see how easily this concept could be fitted into the emerging and more vigorous religion of Christianity, and so enter St. George, in which case, why does St. George enter so late? Two reasons I offer. One, the original manuscript accounts were lost or destroyed, and the 10th or 11th century manuscript is a copy of an older one. Two, the same or a similar incident happened to happen all over again. A vigorous and heroic man, I mean, rescued a young woman from a threatening monster on or near a seacoast, and is about the only class of people in those days who could write with the priests. They hasten to rewrite the incident, and in good Christian terms, lest the recent incident should play into the hands of those who might try to connect it with the old pagan accounts. Who's a good saint for this? St. George? Local chap, good idea. Lend me some ink. Do I think, do I really think that such an incident really occurred in or near the 10th or 11th century in the Middle East? Not necessarily. I merely think that one could have then, earlier, earlier yet, later. May I remind you, after all, of the young lady from Spain who was frequently sick on the train, not once and again, but again and again, and again and again, and again. And may I tell you very, very briefly of the early 20th century and American account 
of an unfortunate young woman who had accused a young man of a criminal, nay, an abominable act against her, which dreadful deed was allegedly committed in the seaside cottage, I may. To use the words of the afflicted victim, it was nothing but rape, rape, rape all summer long. Apollo killed the dragon Python in Delphi in Greece, exactly where Zeus killed the dragon Typhon. My exceedingly exiguous notes fail to remind me, but presumably also in Greece. However, it may have been in more than one place. In the year 1950, ever such a long time ago, shortly after the death of Zeus, I found myself in the island of Cyprus on Mount Troodos. One of the local scholars informed me, and not without pride, Mount Troodos was one of the three authentic Mount Olympuses in the ancient world. Cyprus, though largely Greek in culture, lies nearer to what is now Turkey and was formerly called Asia Minor, or Little Asia. One of the ancient divisions of Asia Minor was called Phrygia. And in, and here I quote, um, confound it, and in Phrygia, and here I quote from Fontainebleau's, Halia, the sea woman, lay with the dragon in a grove of Artemis in Phrygia, and so became the ancestress of the people called Ophiogenes, snake-born. Let us go over some of these implications. Apollo first killed a dragon. Later, he assumed the shape and form of a dragon and had a son by a mortal female, as Grimm reminds us. Grimm doesn't say where these Olympian shenanigans took place, perhaps in the grove of Artemis in Phrygia. And Artemis was the twin sister of Apollo. Nice goings on. Not very particular about allowing her grove to be used as a sort of motel, was she? Several writer for nephews and nieces were snakes or dragons. St. George killed his dragon near the seaport of Jaffa, now called Jaffa, now called Jaffa, just south of Tel Aviv, with which it forms a joint municipality. Curiously enough, that is exactly where Perseus had killed his dragon, and in former times local people could point out to you there a rock on which were to be seen, no, not the footprints of the dragon, or conceivably a duck-billed dinosaur, no, no, the marks of Andromeda's chains, by which he had been fastened to the rock to await the slime monster to heave himself up and come ashore for a dinner date, and I am afraid something even worse. Sigh. Joppa is quite a ways from Greece. It is even quite a ways from Asia Minor. It is not quite so far from Syria. In Syria flows the river Orontes. May I now drop the other shoe and disclose the according to one account, the river Orontes. The river Orontes, of which bitter old Juvenal said that it flowed into the Tiber, meaning that lots of Syrians migrated to Rome. Juvenal didn't like Syrians. Juvenal liked very few people, I am afraid. One wonders how many people liked Juvenal. Maybe that was why he was so bitter. According to one account, the river Orontes 
used to be called the River Dracon. Got that? Get this. Who came there to visit one time but Perseus? Didn't he have and hadn't he had enough of dragons? Some people never learn. Well, well, be that as it may, hey, the Dragon River, and by the way, the name of the Amur River, which separates Siberia from Manchuria, means Black Dragon River. One at each end of Asia. Curious, what? Is it possible that each was named simply because it was a rather snaky river? Stuff. Piffle. Enough debunking. On with the story. Well, the Syrian Dragon River began to flood the land. Perseus, what shall we do, was the common cry. Perseus, after all, knew all about dragons, right? His answer was brief. Boy, was it brief. Pray, he said. And you may bet your pretty little peristalsis that they did pray, which is as good a form of flood control over the long run as any, and doesn't clutter up the landscape with immense dams which damage the hell out of the ecology and often break and drown more people in the floods they were supposed to control. Well, they prayed, and their prayers were followed by a ball of lightning from heaven that stopped the storm and checked the river, says Fontenot. I admit that I was a bit bemused when I first read this. After all, I had first begun my musings on the subject of dragons by musing on the Chinese dragon, not only in its status as a then still living myth in China, I mean, but repeatedly what came back into my mind again was the completely stylized Chinese dragon as it appeared on the old imperial flag and as long after the end of the old imperial regime, which however lasted longer than most of you, I believe, are aware, for the last emperor of China, Hu Yi, died only at the end of the 1960s. He had ascended the dragon throne, as it was called, in about 1908, when he was only four years old. And as this traditional and completely stylized dragon still appeared on countless works, some of which deserved to be called art, and some of which deserved to be called something else. This dragon, familiar really, I should suppose, to all of us, only perhaps I shouldn't, with its body writhing sinuously, and its limbs spread out jaggedly, and viewed from an odd sort of projection, always in front of it that flaming pearl, as it was called, what could it mean? What could it mean? The answer came to me like a flash of lightning. The answer was, it was a flash of lightning. That is, the dragon was a flash of lightning. There are, after all, several forms or kinds of lightning. There is heat lightning, that distant pulsating shimmer we see in summer on the far horizon like a luminous sheet. That isn't it. There is chain lightning, the most familiar sort, the thunderbolt kind. That is it. The kind that shatters trees, strikes people dead, is deflected from houses by lightning rods, and which Ben Franklin, with his funny eyeglasses, induced to enter a key and slither down a wire attached to a silken rainproof kite during a storm and enter a laden jar where it was imprisoned. The beginning of electricity's long enslavement at the hands of men. That jagged, branching streak of electricity 
with its flashing branches of fire was the origin of the dragon anyway of the sky dragon but what was the flashing fiery pearl which traditional Chinese artists always placed just in front of the dragon's snout the inspiration to this was not long in coming this was ball lightning great balls of fire the old Chinese artists seeing lightning flash across the sky seeing its destruction upon the earth had personified it and of the main lightning bolt had made the writhing limb and of the flashing jagged branches had made the limbs and of the ball lightning or even just possibly perhaps out of the so-called St. Elmo's fire the corpus saints or holy bodies as they were called in Western Europe where they terrified sailors who perceived them pulsating on the spars of ships of these literally great balls of fire of cold fire the wonderful Chinese had created that pearl of if not great price at any rate of great mystery thus I had perceived it at the easternmost end of Asia and then and now right here in El Paso in the pages of Fountain Rose's Python book I had perceived it at the westernmost end of Asia in the great ball of lightning which had fallen into the river Orontes the river dragon and checked its flood but perhaps you might offer up another explanation that it perhaps was not after all or need after all have been a ball of lightning perhaps it was a mere hardcore kind of great ball of fire perhaps it was a meteorite perhaps it was but regard a most interesting juxtaposition at the eastern extreme of Asia the dragon went in pursuit of the ball of fire and at the western end of Asia the ball of fire went in pursuit of the dragon the worm turned you say yes but and considering that worm also means dragon evidently it didn't turn fast enough well is that what it all adds up to that the immense and immensely aged ancient legend of the dragon was inspired by a flash of lightning and no more is that all I have to say on the subject by no means to repeat from earlier on that's one explanation there are others one of the others I shall go into during another lecture and one I shall go into right now but before I begin to tell you I have to tell you that least of all in the realm of legend does the primitive idea hold true of there being but one answer to one question regardless of course to such a question as what is the capital of Texas there is one only answer Austin but what makes six an answer three and three that is a right answer a correct answer and now suppose I say four and two make six what how can four and two make six when we all know that three and three make six may I further suggest that five and one make six that four and one and a half make six that but no doubt you take my point 
I've said that I believe that the dragon is a flash of lightning. I have said that the fire-breathing, poison-spouting dragon is a volcano. I'm about to wind up this lecture with another explanation of what the dragon is. And yet, there are other explanations yet. Every bit as good as those. Kipling said that there are nine and sixty ways of composing tribal lays, and every single one of them is right. And some of the other explanations, or anyway one of the other ones, I shall say for another lecture. Yet. So now back to good old Fontainebleau and to Norman Douglas. Mr. Dr. Professor Fontainebleau assumed that every one of his readers knew who Norman Douglas was, no mean assumption, even in the realm of scholarship, and certainly one I feel scarcely able to assume even here. Norman Douglas was half Scotch and half Austrian. He would be well over a hundred were he still alive, which he certainly isn't and had made a modestly successful career as a businessman. It might be judgmental to say that his character contained a flaw, so I shan't say so. What I shall say, for it is after all a matter of history, is that as Norman Douglas approached middle age, he began also to approach boys, young, young boys. The older he got, the younger the boys. Scotland grew too hot for him. Next, he was invited to leave Austria. He found a refuge, perhaps a playpen would be a better word, by the shores of what Swinburne called the tideless, dolorous Midland Sea. In other, hi. In other words, the Mediterranean. Although the Isle of Capri became his main location, he often ventured elsewhere into Italy. Two of his books are quite well known, South Wind, and Siren Land, both novels. Less well known is his travel book, Old Calabria. You may remember, and then again you may not, that it was in Calabria, southernmost area of Italy, that funny old Salinas, as Lynn Carter called him, reported fiery ceremonies in honor of Apollo, also huge serpents, pythons, as one might call them. Fontainebleau says, that in the book, Old Calabria, Douglas, with remarkable insight, foreshadowed some of the conclusions which have been reached by other authorities, including, by the way, Fontainebleau's. In fact, in one or two items, Douglas foreshadowed the conclusions which have been reached by Davidson. Let us quote, are you ready? Go. He believes that the primordial dragon is the spring, for he says springs, uh, here we mean springs of water, are called eyes in both Italy and Arabia, and the eye must be upon a head and the head upon a body. The snake suggested the proper animal shape for the spring to take because of his glassy eye, earth-dwelling habit, cold blood, and tenacity of life. He might have referred also to Hebrew ayin, which means both eye and spring. Then he points to springs in Greece and Italy that are now called Dragonaria or Dragonara. As springs flow night and day, so the dragons are sleepless. As Earth's children, they guard the treasures within her. The spring dragon also becomes a river dragon who becomes hungry and spreads over the land and floods. 
A volcanic crater is a spring of fire, so he becomes a fire dragon that flows forth in lava torrents, or whose poisonous breath becomes the noxious exhalations from volcanic fissures. The dragon was so often identified with volcanoes that ancient and modern authorities have derived the dragon Typho's name from the Greek word for smoke. Well, it may be so. Whatever it is, this mysterious, awesome dragon, it has become realer for us than many real things. Everyone knows what a dragon is supposed to look like. How many can describe a wombat? And as for treasure, what does Fontenrose think? I have already once quoted Pindar, the Theban eagle, as Pope called him. Fontenrose quotes Pindar as Pindar begins and Fontenrose closes. Best is water, then gold that gleams like fire, blazing at night, supreme above proud wealth.